Hi there, it's episode 101. Today, in honor of the beginning of the Simplify Food and Family Month here on Simple Families, I'm going to be telling you all about how I feed my family. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi, it's Danae here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Happy April. This month on Simple Families, we are going to be talking about simplifying all things food and family. On the podcast and on the blog, I'll be leading you through content related to how to minimize your kitchen, how to get your kids to eat well, the basics of growing an organic garden, more about how to have a zero waste kitchen and simplify your kids' lunches, and of course, simplify meal planning. So if you want to join in the discussion, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash April. This month, joining me as co-host, I have my friend Zoe Kim, the author of Minimalism for Families and the founder of the blog Raising Simple. Zoe and I will be spending all of April guiding you through these topics. So please get signed up, simplefamilies.com forward slash April, and join us. So for today, I wanted to start off the month by telling you a little bit more about how food works in my family. To me, it's more about how I feed my kids than it is what I feed my kids. Last year, I wrote a blog post entitled Exactly How I Feed My Kids, and there was a huge response to it, and I actually did a whole podcast episode dedicated to answering questions about that blog post. So if you listen to this episode and you have questions and you want to learn a little more, feel free to go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 49, and you can listen to those questions and answers there. I will also put the link to that original blog post in the show notes. You can find the show notes for today's episode at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 101. So today I'm going to start by talking a little bit about how I fed my kids when they were babies because we were really intentional when we started solid foods with our kids when they were six months old. I'm also going to share what I call the cardinal rule of feeding young children and explain how that impacts my approach. I'll share my thoughts on snacks, the way that I talk to my kids during meals, a little bit about my favorite meal planning methods, and some ways that I keep it simple in the kitchen. Now, the things that I'm sharing today are things that work for my family. They might not necessarily work for your family. So if you find some things helpful, go ahead and take that. If you find some things that are not helpful, leave it. I should probably preface all of this with my interest in this topic. So I grew up a very picky eater. I don't think I ate a vegetable until I turned 19. When I met my husband, he encouraged me to try new things. And because I really liked him and we had been dating for a while, he talked me into really going outside my comfort zone. And I now eat pretty much everything there is imaginable. So as a picky eater myself, I wanted to make sure that I did everything that I could to prevent that sort of behavior in my own children. Now, I should say that it's not always possible to prevent picky eating, but there are certainly things that we can do to help. My PhD is in child development and my research is in child wellness. More specifically, looking at parent approaches to feeding young children and the impact that it has as as children grow older. Therefore, when it comes to feeding my own family, I use a lot of research-based approaches, but I also use a lot of intuitive common sense too. So let's start from square one. When my kids were six months old, I started out feeding them with something called baby led weaning. 
If you're interested in learning more about baby led weaning, I wrote a pretty lengthy post about how to get started with baby led weaning, and I will put that in the show notes too. In a nutshell, baby led weaning is a way of feeding infants without purees. So instead of pureeing baby food, at six months you start solids with whole pieces of food. So you steam broccoli super soft and you give it to a child so they can pick it up and put it in their mouth. Baby led weaning is an excellent way to expose children to texture from a very early age. And we know from the research that children need to be exposed to adequate amounts of texture before the age of nine months old or they become more resistant in their toddler years. So the more texture, the earlier, the better. Now, I certainly love baby led weaning for exposing children to texture, but there's also a piece of exposing to taste that we need to keep in mind too. When babies are born, they're inclined to like the taste sweet. Breast milk is sweet, so they are attracted to the breast to be able to find their food supply. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise you that children tend to prefer sweet as they grow through their first year. However, they also do acquire a taste for salty and sour and bitter foods as they grow. A taste for bitter foods is generally the last to come about, and some kids don't really ever develop a taste for bitter foods. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that most bitter foods are in fact vegetables. So things like leafy greens, broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, these things are all bitter. So I started with as many bitter foods as possible because just like we need to expose kids to adequate textures before they turn one, we also need to expose them to adequate flavors. Bitter being one of the most important because it's not something that we are naturally inclined to feed babies. Here in the U.S., the top two most common first vegetables for infants are sweet potatoes and peas. Now, if you think about it, both of those vegetables are sweet in flavor. Sweet potatoes, sweet peas. So yes, children are more likely to accept these types of vegetables that have a sweet flavor, carrots being another one. If you go through the baby food aisles, you'll see that most baby foods have a first ingredient of carrots, sweet potatoes, peas, or some type of fruit, maybe apple or pear. But it's rare to find a commercial baby food that has a first ingredient of broccoli or spinach because babies don't prefer it. So baby food companies make food that babies like. But here's what happens. When we don't intentionally expose our babies to bitter foods, they become less likely to eat those bitter foods and that variety of vegetables and other flavors as they grow older. Sadly, as the baby food industry has really tuned in to the likes and tastes of babies, they've started to tailor to those tastes. So if you want to feed your baby a commercial spinach, it's often pears and spinach. So that bitter spinach flavor is covered in sweet pears. You'll see this more so as babies get older. So the stage three baby food, I would say, is often the worst offender of this because usually by stage three, infants are starting to get a little bit choosier. Okay, so I could talk about baby food all day, but back to my point. So when I started my kids on solid foods, I made sure that they had a lot of texture and a lot of flavor variety in the very early months, in particular between six and nine months. Around nine months, we start to see a little bit of pickiness cropping up in young children. I didn't see any of it with my kids, maybe in fact, partly because of their genetics, but also in part because they were exposed to a significant amount of this variety in the very early months. So also starting at day one, we started the, what I call the cardinal rule of feeding children. 
This is also called the Division of Responsibilities, and it was developed by Ellen Satter. That's E-L-L-Y-N-S-A-T-T-E-R. And what Ellen says is basically that we as parents pick what children are to eat, and they choose how much of it to eat and whether or not to eat it. So that's the division of responsibilities. We each have our own responsibility. I have my job, which is to choose healthy, good food for my kids to eat. And my kids have their job, which is to choose whether or not they're going to eat it and how much they're going to eat of it, whether that's nothing, whether that's all of it, whatever it might be. That means I do my job and I let them do theirs. I don't step on their toes and I don't let them step on mine. So when my kids were six months old, this looked like me choosing to feed them broccoli. And if they turn their head away from the broccoli, then the mealtime was over. It wasn't time to pull out something sweet like pears or bananas. Now, this is really easy to do between six and 12 months of age because kids are getting their nutrition from either breast milk or formula. In this time period, solids is really just for fun. So if they turn their head at the broccoli, it's not a big deal because they can just fill up on milk or formula later. So I see this early window between 6 and 12 months as really being a window of opportunity for parents to get adequate exposure in and to start practicing this cardinal rule of feeding, this responsibilities where the parent chooses the food and the child chooses whether or not to eat it. Now, you don't have to start this practice from the earliest age. If you have kids who are older and you want to start with this division of responsibility where you're choosing the food and they're choosing whether or not to eat it, you can start that at any age. Having this rule and being consistent about it in our house has really taken the power struggle out of mealtime. It's truly enjoyable to sit down with my kids for lunch and dinner and breakfast or whatever the meal is. There's no whining and complaining. We talk and enjoy each other's company, but when it comes to the food itself, we kind of mind our own business. The research shows us that a more positive, happy, enjoyable climate at mealtime will actually lead to our kids eating better food. The studies also show that the more pressure and encouragement we put on our kids to eat, the less likely they are going to be to eat what we want them to eat. So when it comes time to having meals with my kids, it's a lot more relaxed because I talk to them the same way that I talk to my husband. I don't say, oh, you have to have two more bites. I don't say, oh, do you like this? It's really good. This is so yummy. You have to try it. I think you're really going to like it. There's no coaching that goes on. Like I said, we kind of just mind our own business. I trust that my kids know what they need to eat, that they know how much they need to eat to fill up their own appetite. And the more that I trust them to do that, the more that they're going to trust their own instincts when it comes to eating. So one of the ways that I make sure that my kids eat well at mealtimes is I make sure that they're hungry. And in the year 2018, parents fear hunger like nothing else. And I totally get this because my four-year-old gets so crazy hangry when he doesn't eat. So I, I know where you're at with that. But I also know that feeling a little bit of hunger is actually healthy. That sensation of hunger is what tells us when we need to eat. Many children today are being fed so many snacks that they don't actually experience hunger very often, if ever. Because as parents, we do so much of this preventative feeding, preventing the hunger that they don't get to experience it. So the way that I've found to balance a little bit of hunger without going too far into the deep end with hangriness is we keep what I like to call meal windows. So the windows are an hour before each meal and an hour after. So we generally eat dinner at 5.30. So from 4.30 to 6.30 is a meal window, an hour before the meal and an hour after the meal. 
between each meal window, my kids are only allowed to eat that meal. So if they're in the kitchen prepping dinner with me, they're allowed to snack on whatever the foods it is I'm prepping for dinner. So if I'm chopping carrots and it's 4.45, sure, they can, they can snack on some carrots. That's fine. This also works similarly after dinner. So if we eat dinner at 5.30 and then 6 o'clock comes and they're asking for yogurt, the answer is no, because we're still in that meal window. So between 4.30 and 6.30, if you're hungry, you're eating the meal. So I often tell my kids, no, it's still dinner time. Now my kids go to bed at 7, so sometimes they do have a snack before they go to bed at night, and that's totally fine. What I want to avoid is for them saying no thank you to dinner and then reaching for a snack five minutes later. So an hour before each meal and an hour after each meal, they're only eating the meal that I'm serving. So this brings me to snacks. These meal windows really do cut back on snacks. Because my kids generally are hungry at 4.45 and 5 o'clock, So sure, they could reach for a snack, but nine times out of 10, that snack is going to ruin their appetite for dinner. So as no surprise, I'm not a big fan of snacks. I actually don't think that we should be feeding babies snacks at all. From six to 12 months when babies are starting solid foods, they're really supposed to be focusing on experimenting with fruits and vegetables and some meats and other healthy foods and drinking breast milk or formula as their main source of nutrition. There's no room in that window for snacks. And no, babies do not need puffs in order to learn how to develop a pincher grasp. Babies have had pincher grasps since prehistoric times, and puffs have not really been around that long. So we've been doing just fine without them. So when we're at home for the day, my kids will generally have a snack in the morning around 1030, and sometimes they'll have one in the afternoon. My daughter takes a long afternoon nap, so she generally does not have an afternoon snack, but my son usually does. I usually wait for my kids to initiate it. I don't offer the snack. If they don't ask, then I just assume they're probably not all that hungry. Now, this is different when we're out for the day. So if we go to the city for a full day, if we're on vacation, oftentimes two things happen. Our meal schedules are off. So we usually eat lunch at 1130 or 12 every day. But if we are out for the day, we might not eat until one o'clock. So in that situation, yes, my kids are having more snacks than usual. The other thing is that when we're out for a full day and we have a busy day planned, we are often expending more calories. So we're walking a lot, we're being very active, we're hiking, we're doing things. So burning off all that extra energy is probably going to result in a need for snacks more often as well. At home, we do a little bit of snacks. When we're out, we do a little bit more. But generally speaking, we try to stick to the meal windows as much as possible. When it comes to snacks, I make sure that my kids are eating when they're hungry, not when they're upset, not when they're bored. I will often see kids with bags of Cheerios in the grocery store and snack traps in the car. And sometimes it seems like those snacks are being used to prevent a child from crying or to prevent boredom. And I think when we start those habits, when we start using snacks to fill emotional voids, that we're really running the risk of setting up patterns for emotional eating later on. It starts young. So I think it's just something to consider. Is it an absolute? No, it's not. But it's something to think about. 
So I mentioned that I talk to my kids about food the way that I talk to my husband, and I try to use that as my rule of thumb. So one of the big things that I don't talk about with them is likes and dislikes. So if they say I like a food or I dislike a food, I don't make conversation about it. I also don't take it to heart. Food preferences are often dynamic rather than static in young children. That means they are always changing. My daughter used to gorge herself with strawberries, and recently she's been throwing them on the floor. But she doesn't dislike strawberries right now. She just doesn't prefer them. And those are the words that I like to give to my kids when they say that they dislike something. So if they say, I don't like this, I will say, oh, you don't prefer this. This is in an effort to give them language to understand that likes and dislikes around food don't have to be absolute. There are lots of reasons that toddlers specifically struggle with picky eating. There are evolutionary sources for this issue. There are also behavioral sources and developmental sources. That's another thing that I could talk days and days about. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to stick with talking about the language source of this picky eating issue. So one of the things that we know about young children is that their thinking is very black and white. Everything is love, hate, black, white, up, down, yes, no. There's very little in between. They don't understand the gray area. This is why we'll often see kids who have very limited number of foods that they'll accept. So these are the things that they love. They love yogurt, pizza, burgers, french fries, grilled cheese, and fruit. And they hate everything else. Now, if we're simply looking to our kids to talk about their likes and dislikes, and if we're using those as our gauge, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that our kid likes just a few things and they hate everything else because they don't know how to talk about and they don't know how to understand this gray area, this middle area of all the other foods. So like me, I love chocolate and I like sweet potatoes. I think they're okay. They're not something that I would eat just to kind of snack on, but if they're served with a meal, I'll definitely eat them and I enjoy them. But I wouldn't say I love them. As an adult, I can understand that gray area. And I understand that most of the foods I eat every day are sweet potatoes. They are that gray area food. Sure, I eat lots of things that I love and I don't very often eat things that I hate, but most of the foods I eat, the vast majority of foods that I eat are going to be in that middle zone. So as our kids develop, we can help to give them language and give them ways to talk about this. And as parents, it's important that we don't take it as an absolute. We don't say, oh, you said you don't like it. Okay, I'm never going to give it to you again. I can tell you that there's not a single food that my kids dislike. Are there foods that my kids won't eat? Sure. But in my mind, I don't classify foods for them. I don't classify foods that he likes and he doesn't like or foods that she likes and she doesn't like. I think there are foods that they eat better than others. But in general, I consider that they like everything and I just serve them everything. And the research shows us that the more exposures that they have and the more often they see all those foods, the more often they are going to be able to eat and willing to eat it. So we don't make assumptions about the foods that our kids are going to eat. We don't assume that they're not going to eat something. I think that it's really important when we feed our kids something that we truly believe that they are going to eat it. Because if we don't believe that they're going to eat a food that we're serving, then they're certainly not going to eat it. We have to believe that our kids are capable and we have to believe that they are going to give it a try when, when it's, the time is right for them. Okay, so I could go on and on for days about this sort of thing. So I want to talk a minute about how I do meal planning, what type of food I prep, and how I keep it simple. 
So I do something called backwards meal planning, and I actually wasn't aware that it was even called this until I recently read Aaron Odom's new book. Aaron Odom is one of the wonderful guests that I have on the podcast coming up for this month. So backwards meal planning is going to the grocery store, picking out the foods, and then coming home and making your dinner and your lunch and your recipes. So I should say that the food at my house is not fancy by any means, but it's healthy and it's edible. And right now at the season that we are with two young children, that's enough for us. That is enough for me. And I don't feel inadequate and I don't feel like my family is missing out by not having gourmet meals made with like 800 ingredients that take two hours to to execute. So here's what I do. I go to the grocery store. I tend to buy the fruits and vegetables that are on sale because, well, they're on sale, but also because usually what's in season tends to be on sale. That helps me to shop more seasonally. And then I also buy lots of different protein sources. So most evenings, what our dinner consists of is some source of protein and some source of vegetables. Snacks throughout the day are often fruits. I don't serve fruit at meals for my kids because I know that that's all they would eat if I did that. And I know that's just a thing that I have learned from my own children. I don't think that that's necessarily the end-all be-all rule or anything like that. So when I'm going to prepare dinner, I generally prepare a vegetable. I either roast it or I steam it or boil it or whatever I'm going to do. And I prepare that with a protein. And most of the time, it's very simple. I usually use olive oil, salt, and pepper to season things. Now I do mix it up with herbs and spices, and sometimes I cook from recipes. But most nights, I keep it really simple by simply making a meat and making a vegetable, or it may be a fish and a vegetable. Like I said, it keeps it healthy. Usually I can do it in less than 10 minutes. I also really love one pot cooking. So I have a favorite cookbook from Martha Stewart called Martha Stewart's One Pot Meals that I swear by because it teaches you how to cook a meal in one pot or in one pan and it has such little cleanup. So that, when I got rid of all my cookbooks, that's actually the only cookbook that I kept. And I just recently added The Minimalist Kitchen by Melissa Coleman to my very small cookbook collection of just two. And I'm really liking Melissa's Minimalist Kitchen book. It's definitely not a one-pot meals book, but the recipes tend to be very simple and do have a lot of flavor. So I'm sure that my husband is probably happy that I am mixing in some recipes with my backwards meal planning of just choosing vegetables and proteins. I should say that we cook 100% gluten-free at home. I'm gluten-free. No one in my family is. But I found that it's just easier if I just cook gluten-free for everyone so that I don't have to have separate meals and I'm not preparing separate things. We also don't serve sugar at home. Now, my kids do eat sugar if they have birthday parties or sometimes we'll go out for ice cream and that sort of thing. But we try to keep sort of an 80-20 principle when it comes to sugar. So 80% of the time we eat our meals at home and we don't eat sugar and we eat very healthy. And then 20% of the time we eat out and we do indulge and eat really good stuff. So we try not to be crazy about it, but I do try to keep it really healthy and sugar-free at home. Okay, so I think that I've said a lot, and I'm hoping that some of this will have resonated with you, and some of it probably sounded a little bit crazy, and that's completely okay too. 
I'm really excited about this month on Simple Families. I think that I have some really great guests coming up on the podcast, and I think the discussion in the focused group is going to be really wonderful too. So you can find more about some of the things that I talked about today in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 101. And also please join our focus group for this month. You can find that at simplefamilies.com forward slash April. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and I greatly appreciate those of you who have left reviews and ratings for the show in iTunes. That helps the show to reach more people, and I am so very thankful when you do that. So please, if you haven't, take a moment and do that. Thank you for tuning in.